Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Put your finger there and then turn also to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'll, uh, I'll warm you up front that there's a lot of content tonight, and it's going to come a little fast, so don't space out on me, or you'll probably miss something. Uh, David was supposed to originally teach tonight, but he swapped with Elijah after he got the invite to go out of town, and a few weeks ago in my prayer time, I just felt the nudge for the Holy Spirit to pick up the day from Elijah, and so here we are. I think it's going to be good, so strap in and let's get to it. Uh, The message I'm about to share tonight is one that I delivered about three years ago during a 10 days meeting that we hosted here at the House of Prayer. And at the time, I was staffing the night watch here, and I was asking the Lord to reveal his heart towards the church. You see, many times it's easy to see how the parts of the body of Christ are connected, right? You know, we have several radio stations here in town that that broadcast sermons of local and national ministries. And some, some weeks it's almost like they compared notes with each other. And they decided to preach on the same thing. It, it's not the same sermon, but the themes are connected. And so there's this loose continuity between all of the different ministries. But in the midst of the, the crisis, YouTube can't get me for that, of 2020, y'all see my quotations there? Put manufactured in there. I felt that continuity diminish. The, the messages coming from the body of Christ, for the lack of a better term, became co- incoherent. Especially the prophetic. You know, one camp would say this and another camp would say that. Some would release curses against the situation. Others would proclaim the judgment of, of the Lord was upon us. And still others made the decision not to say anything and just shut the doors. One voice became many to the point that confusion set in. And and I wrestled with this. And I began to seek the Lord on this and he took me to two verses which we're about to look at. The first one I want to look at is Romans chapter 1 verse 18. We're going to take, take it through to 30, Kim I said 32, right? Okay, we're going, to, we're going to go through 32. So this is, uh, this is Paul speaking. And we'll start at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. If you're into unlining, underline that. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. You can underline that too. Nor were they thankful, but they become futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like incorruptible or corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves, 
who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It's a lot going on right there. You can almost see the smoke coming off the page as Paul's writing it. In this passage, Paul tells us that the wrath of God is revealed to men who suppress the truth of God and exchange or pervert the identity of God for things that are corruptible. And furthermore, there is to be no excuse for these men because they did this having known the truth of God. Now, if you're like me, you're probably sitting there thinking, yeah, get them, God. About time they got what was coming to them. Well, hold on to that. Put that on the back burner for a moment. And so continuing on, Paul says that that God turns these folks over to their own devices. He lets them explore the, the very depths of the depravity to their heart's content, even to the point of removing the knowledge of God from their thoughts and allowing them to experience the fruits of their labors with verse 29 and 30, listing out the wages of their sins, envy, strife, murder, deceit, and, and so forth. Does any of that sound familiar? All those things that... I mean, I mean, it kind of sounds like all the stuff going on today, right? And you might say, well, yeah, pastor, what does that have to do with the church? I mean, I mean come on. Well, would it surprise you to know that these very things are happening in the church? If you were to do an internet search, you will find a lot of things. <laughs> but among those things, you will find dozens of articles and news reports from all over the country that describe churches taking part in each and every one of these things listed above. From cover-ups of misdeeds and abuse to perverting the truth of the gospel. Many of these churches, they look great from the outside. They have, a, they have a multitude of events, they preach great sermons, but their actions, or even in some cases their inactions, speak to the true conditions of their hearts and of the people. They are what we call a Matthew 15, 8 people, which says that these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They go to church, they pray for forgiveness, and then they go right back to sinning it up during the week. 
They spend their time and their finances pursuing the American dreams instead of the kingdom of heaven. They have quenched the voice of the Holy Spirit by filling their heads with a multitude of social media posts, TikToks and other media. They can list a plethora of sports facts, stock performances, celebrity news, and horsepower specs. Yeah, buddy. But they can't recall a single verse from the Word of God. And ultimately, many of them look no different than the worst of the world outside of the church. And yet still, they plead for revival. Second Chronicles 7, verse 14. says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. My friends, until we, those who are called by his name, come to the place of true repentance and cleanse ourselves of all unrighteousness, by refusing to compromise with this world system, revival and the healing of our land is not going to come. God's heart's desire right now is for his church to stop playing games, to stop making excuses, and fully commit to being a spotless bride. And it's time for the bride of Christ to come out of agreement with the doctrine of demons that says, hey, it's okay to keep living in sin as long as you call yourself a Christian. It's a lie straight from the pits of hell that will cost you your soul. Let's take a look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them that I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. Father, we just lift up this time to you, God, and I just ask you for a clear spirit, a clear voice, and to be able to speak and articulate your word here. Yeah, so for fertile ground, God, and the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name. So we see in this passage that Jesus is, is preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he, and he draws a picture of a group of people trying to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now these guys, they probably go to church every week and they and pray a lot. Maybe they sing in the choir or they teach Sunday school. To all appearances, they would be considered good folk, right? And so they're standing at the gates of heaven. They, they passionately make their case by pointing to all the great works they did in the name of Jesus. But in the end, they are rejected from entering because of what? Their practice of lawlessness. You see, they refuse to be subject or accountable to the law. What Jesus is trying to show us is that there's more to working out our salvation than professing his name and doing good works. 
They believed that God was real and Jesus had the power to save, but they were deceived into believing they could somehow obtain salvation without coming to the place of repentance. The gospel that many in the church are standing on is one of hyper grace, that you can keep on keeping on with your sinful ways as long as you believe Jesus is real and has the power to save. And again, I say to you, that is a lie from your adversary, the devil. And the word of God is in direct opposition to it. James chapter two, verse 19 says that you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And so it's not enough to believe that God is real and play church once a week. I mean, for some of us, twice a year. Our adversary, the devil, and his minions believe in God and shudder at his presence. But that doesn't mean they're going to dwell in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Revelations chapter 12, verses 7 through 9 describes their rejection from heaven with verse 9 stating, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan who deceived the whole earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And so, my friends, make no mistake, salvation cannot come before repentance. I know some of you might be thinking, oh, this is this, you know, this all wrong. Salvation comes by faith alone. And you are right. But I would submit to you that you cannot come to true faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior without first coming to the place of true repentance. The biblical definition of faith is found in Hebrews 11, chapter, or verse one, sorry, chapter 11, verse one. It says, now faith is, the, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That word substance is translated as assurance or confidence in some other versions. And so faith is complete confidence that something is real even when we can't see it. Or to put it another way, you take God seriously. When we as believers make that declaration of faith, we are making an affirmation of our complete confidence that Jesus died and rose to the grave for the remission of our sins. He is alive and sits at the right hand of the Father and everything, everything he said is real, true, and just. Which means that when Jesus outlined the righteous requirement of the law as to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, you believe that is real, true, and just. But you see, a problem arises when instead of coming to the place of repentance, we willfully continue in our sin. By not turning away from your sin, you're putting your own desires above God's. Your actions say, God, you can have all of my fart, except this little piece over here. That's mine. I'm gonna hold on to it. But therein lies the problem. By holding back a part of yourself, you set aside the righteous requirement of the law to love God with all your heart thereby holding your faith with partiality 
which by definition is an impossibility as you can no longer maintain that you have complete confidence in the truth of his words. You see, the truth is, is that for many, it's not really an issue of belief or knowledge or any other matter of excuse. It's an issue of lawlessness. <coughs> Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. And so true repentance must come before true faith. Without true repentance, there can never be a true faith. And this is spelled out from the beginning of the New Testament till the end. And I'm gonna take you guys on a quick tour here through the New Testament to firmly establish that repentance must come before faith. The first place we're gonna look at is Matthew chapter three, verses one and two. And it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Before Jesus steps into his ministry, we have John the Baptist preaching repentance. As a forerunner to Jesus, whom we are to believe in and obtain salvation, we have the message of repentance. John prepared the way for Jesus by preaching baptism as an outward act of leaving the old man behind and being renewed in heart and mind. And not only is this act itself significant, but moreover that it was prophesied to happen by the prophet of Isaiah when he spoke of the one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord hundreds of years beforehand. And so in other words, it was not an accident. It was the plan. And Jesus was waiting for the completion of John's work to begin his ministry. And we know that because it's recorded in the gospel of Mark, chapter one, verses 14 through 15. Which says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so as soon as John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus comes and starts his ministry. Now take note here. The first commandment Jesus spoke from the start of his ministry was not believe and then repent but to repent and then believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. And so let's look at another one. Luke chapter 13, verses one through three. There were present, I'm reading now, just so y'all know. Kim, are you keeping up? Ah, love it. She did a good job, y'all. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to him, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. For context here, Jesus is in the middle of his ministry at this point, and he's teaching a large group of people through parables. And he's asked by some of them about some people that Pilate had either tortured or, or put to death. We aren't really told. And it isn't really covered by Josephus as a historical account. But the question being asked is about the degree of sin. In other words, really bad stuff happened to these people, so they must have been real bad sinners. Way worse than us, right? 
See, people have this tendency to try to justify not coming to the place of true repentance by comparing degrees of sin. I'm not a big a sinner as Joe over there. I mean, he lies every day to all his customers. I only lie on my tax returns once a year. It's okay. Or I'm not as bad as Jimmy over there. I only speed at night when no one's looking. I only watch inappropriate things every once in a while. I only do this or I do that just a little bit. I mean, it's not like I'm driving the Death Star around blowing up planets. I mean, come on, right? Just because bad things happen doesn't mean you're being punished by God. Job's friends were rebuked by God himself after making this accusation. And secondly, there is no degree, shade, or level of sin that has a different outcome from the other. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus confirms this in his response again by pointing the need for us to repent in order to come into everlasting life and not perish. So continuing on our tour, we're gonna look at Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. Verse 46, he says, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and the remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Again, for context, Jesus has died on the cross and risen from the grave. He is speaking to his disciples in his resurrected form. And these are the last words of Jesus that were recorded by Luke. And it's the same message of repentance preceding the remission of sins, which we know comes by faith in him. Well, let's keep going. Acts chapter two, verses 37 and 38. Peter's just finished his first sermon. Verse 37 says, now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, Paul is exhorting the Ephesian leaders saying, how I kept nothing or kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. Paul's message to the Gentiles is the very same as Christ's message. And finally, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1. Verse 1 says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. It's an interesting word, that perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Once again, we see that the message of repentance before faith in God is established as the foundation of our salvation. Paul says that before we move on to the good stuff, the meat of the matter, if you will, we must first lay the foundation of our faith, which is to repent first and then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there we have it. From the ministry of John the Baptist all through the ministry of Jesus and continuing on after his death, 
and resurrection, the message of the gospel has been repent and then believe. Not believe and keep on keeping on, not sin less and believe, repent and believe. You see, everything hinges on coming to that place of true repentance. And so having established that true repentance must come first, what is it? Good question. To repent means two things. The first one is to change your mind. And the second one is to go in a different direction. And so we see two distinct actions going on here. One is an inward change of mind, and the other is a physical act. When we put both of the pieces together, we have an inner change of mind resulting in an outward turning away from sin and moving in a completely different direction. And it's only when both pieces are active and working together that we can come to the place of true repentance. Now I want to point out here that the inner change of mind is a not is not an emotional state. You see, repentance is a decision and not an emotion. We often associate emotion with repentance, but it precludes the change of mind necessary for repentance. And we can see that in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 through 17. Verse 16 says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, one or sorry, for who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he had found no, replace, no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The Bible says in Genesis twenty-five thirty-four that Esau despised his birthright after he sold it to his brother. And later when his father was settling, or he was old and he was settling his affairs, he sought to bestow the blessing that was due the firstborn. And so Isaac called in Esau and he told him his intent to bless him, but he said, hey man, first, if you could go rustle me up a steak, that'd be great. Y'all gotta read this story. That was funny. <laughs> Now Esau knew full well that he having sold his birthright to Jacob, he was no longer eligible for this blessing. But he went along with it anyways. And of course that we know that he was thwarted by his mother and his, and his brother and was ultimately rejected. But when he discovered this, the Bible says that he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and he lifted up his voice and wept. However, he never stopped despising his birthright. After all this, he, he held murderous thoughts in his heart toward his brother, and he purposely took a wife from the family of Ishmael to spite both his father and his mother. Now, for those of you who might be thinking, well, he was probably sad and lonely and found comfort in getting married. Don't be too quick. <laughs> this was actually his third wife. Earlier in his life, he, after he had sold his birthright to his brother, he took two wives from the Hittites that the Bible says that were a grief to the minds of Isaac and Rebekah, his parents. And so despite the great sorrow and the many tears he shed, he never changed his mind. He hated his birthright to the point of bringing pagan women into the family tree. 
It's possible to feel great remorse and shed all the tears in the world, but not come to the place of repentance. A thief feels remorse when he's caught, but that doesn't mean he stops stealing. An unfaithful spouse feels remorse when the affair is found out, but that doesn't mean they will stop having affairs. A crooked politician feels remorse when the bribes, corruption, and lies are exposed. But that doesn't mean they're going to stop all that stuff. And I wonder how many of us do the same thing. Constantly coming to the place of sorrow. Sorry we got caught. Sorry that we hurt others around us but never coming to the point of changing our mind to stop doing that thing and go in a different direction. It's in the the realm of the mind that we have the beginning of repentance. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. The way we regard sin is the precursor to how we behave or act towards it. If we see it through the eyes of the righteous, then we hate it and we make no place for it in our thoughts. But if we regard sin with partiality, then we are what James calls double-minded. And Jesus makes this point when he says, no one can serve two masters. You're either all in or you're all out. The kingdom of heaven has no place for rebel Christians that have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of heaven. What you're really doing is putting both feet in the grave. And so only by changing the way we regard sin and making the decision to wholeheartedly pursue righteousness that we can begin the process of repentance. James chapter four, verses one through five. Verse one says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. A defining moment of the believer's life is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within our bodies. The desire to change our mind about how we regard sin does not originate from the physical cells. 
but rather from the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit within us yearns jealously for the things of God. The Bible says that it searches out the deep things of God in order to reveal them to us. And it teaches us truth and convicts the heart. It allows us to understand the word of God. And it is through the work of the Holy Spirit that we experience the renewing of our mind that Paul describes in Romans 12 too, And the desire to change it. But, you see, we still have to choose to accept it. We have to make the decision to choose righteousness and accept the things that the Holy Spirit is saying. Now, the thing about love is it's not real unless it's freely given. God's not looking for the respect and adoration of a bunch of mindless robots that don't have a choice. His desire is, is a people who, out of all the other things, freely made the decision to follow him. And this brings us to the second requirement of true repentance. And that is making the choice to physically turn away from sin. This is where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him it is sin. If you recall earlier, I mentioned that for many of us, it's not a question of having our mind made up about sin. We know it's wrong, but for some reason, don't turn around. And Paul spends the greater part of Romans chapter 7 asking the question, why does my flesh do the exact thing my mind wills it not to do? And it's here we see the ultimate battleground of the believer. Self-control. To compel your flesh to conform to the righteous requirement of the law. You see, my friends, at some point, we have to act out that decision to turn away from sin and pursue righteousness. And this may be the hardest thing that you face in your life. Many of us have spent years training our mind and body to act and pursue certain things. In some cases, we're fighting decades of muscle memory. And it may be that you find that you can't do it by yourself. But again, I will point us to the work of the Holy Spirit within us. The Bible says, not by might, nor by, my, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. David spoke last week on the difficulty of being in a conversation with the Holy Spirit and trying to act out your sin. You, you literally have to tell the Holy Spirit, go away, I, I don't want to talk to you anymore. To do it. You have to break off that conversation and shoo him away to pursue what you're not supposed to. I'm a living testament that you can overcome 20 years of addictive behavior and be totally and completely free. It is not easy and it takes real work. But if you are willing to believe God at his word and truly desire to be free, it can be done. 
Another thing I want to touch on here is, is substituting physical acts or works without coming to the place of repentance. Isaiah chapter 64, 6 says that we are but, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The word righteousnesses says, is there enough I don't know, encompasses all the good acts that you're doing. Charity, prayers, church attendance, every kind of religious rite and ordinance, even the profession of Christianity. God looks at those as filthy rags, worthless in his sight in the absence of true repentance. The Bible describes God's heart toward these things. With Isaiah 1, chapter 11 says, to what purpose is the multitude of sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or, the, or of lambs or goats. Jeremiah 7.22 says, For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. And in Hosea 6, verse 6, it says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The, the physical act of sacrifice was, was, not, was not only to be atonement for the remission of sin, but an outer representation of the humbling of the heart to God. Without that right heart condition, that sacrifice becomes nothing more than a business transaction. As common as paying for fuel in your car or groceries at HEB or Walmart. God is not interested in our self-imposed penance. What he is interested in is our obedience to him, which starts with repentance. And so we see only by putting all the pieces together, the inward change of heart, the outward turning away from sin, do we find true repentance that leads to true faith in Jesus Christ. We set either of the two aside, we find ourselves abusing the grace afforded to us. Hebrews chapter six, verses four through eight. says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. By knowing the truth and continuing in your willful disobedience, you are putting Jesus back on the cross and crucifying him all over again. 
The blood he shed on the cross is not your free pass to do whatever you want and still obtain salvation. You cannot use his blood to justify your decision to not come to the place of, a tr- of true repentance and not turn away from your sin. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. My friends, you cannot continue willfully sinning and obtain salvation. The blood of Christ is not some common currency to be used transactionally. It's worth. It's worth giving everything over to him. Salvation demands complete faith in Jesus as your savior. When we hold back a portion of your life and not turning everything and not turn everything over to him, we're declaring that he isn't worthy or somehow incompetent to handle that piece of your life and thereby diminishing the power to totally and radically transform your heart, soul, mind and body to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Church, the Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. Our relationship with him is by a blood covenant. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When we repent from our old ways and make that public declaration of faith in Jesus, we're entering into a marriage covenant as the bride of Christ. And that marriage covenant is considered to be a blood covenant, which is the most solemn vow one can take. By the shedding of his blood on the cross and calling the church his bride, Jesus has invited us into the most solemn covenant there is. So what is the marriage covenant? Is it it better for worse? Is it death to us part? In a nutshell, it's this. It's two people dying to themselves and living for one another. It's saying that I am relinquishing ownership of everything in my life and I'm transferring it to that other person. We are declaring that I'm I'm dying to myself and living for the one to whom I'm making this covenant with. And that means everything. Holding nothing back. I know that might seem like a steep price. You know, because as humans, we like to be able to call stuff ours. We like to have that one thing that we can put our name on and that no, that's no one else's. Maybe it's the TV. Maybe it's the Bentley in the garage. Maybe it's our time. Or maybe it's that secret sin that you refuse to turn over to him. Whatever it is, if it's not submitted to God, you're holding out. The Bible says, thou shalt not have any gods before me. Christ demands everything submitted to him. Why? Because when we are submitting ourselves and giving ownership over everything we have to him, we're also granted the authority to lay claim to the things of God. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but God's bank account is way bigger than mine. John 14, 14 says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's talk about marrying up, right? 
But that's what the marriage covenant is, two people dying to themselves and all that they have to live for the one that they're in covenant with. Jesus has already died to himself and shed blood on the cross. What do we need to die to tonight and submit to him in order to be holy and without wrinkle? In closing, Daniel, you can come right up. In closing, I want us to examine the story of Achan in Joshua chapter seven. This time, the the people of Israel has crossed over the Jordan River on dry land and were committed to burn the city of Jericho, taking nothing and leaving nothing alive. But in secret, a man named Achan takes a number of things for himself and he hides them in his tent. And following this supernatural victory at Jericho, the Israelites scout out the city of Ai. I know it's said that way because it's only two letters, A and I. And they figured that after the great victory they experienced at Jericho, that these small fries, they'd be no problem. And so they send less than a tenth of their army to deal with them, and they're utterly defeated. 3,000 men of war turned in fear to retreat back to camp. The Bible says that the hearts of the people melted and became like water because of the defeat. Joshua falls before the Lord, and it says in Joshua 7, 7, he says, Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. The Israelites had a superior force. Even with 10% of their army, they still could have just wiped the floor with these guys. But they were completely ineffective in the face of the enemy. Why? Because they were sent on the camp. One person's secret, willful disobedience to the commandment of the Lord had a far-reaching effect that ultimately cost him his life. It destroyed him. Recall earlier when I mentioned how an internet search would generate articles of churches and church leaders taking part in these sinful activities. There is sin in the camp of our churches. But I have good news for you. First Peter, it's the last verse, I promise. First Peter 4, 17 through 19 says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The reason that you are seeing these things and you can find them on the internet is because the Lord is exposing these things and he's purging his house of wickedness. And if judgment begins at the house of God, then it's only a matter of time before it begins 
to be time to judge the nation. And in the wake of judgment, revival comes. And so I say all this to tell you that the Lord, that, that God is about to move. Some of you will procrastinate. Your house is in shambles. And you know you have company coming over. But it's not till next week. You know that your house is in out of order, but you've got time. It's not too bad. It'll only take me like an hour or two. Besides, if I do it now, it'll just get dirty again. I'll have to do it over again. And so you put it on tomorrow's things to worry about. And you go about the things that were really important. Many of us have the same mindset when it comes to our heart condition. When the coming of the Lord is far off, the fact that their house, the temple of the Holy Spirit is in shambles is not very high on the to-do list. It's still far off. I'll worry about this sin issue later. I still got time. And so you kick the can down the road. Tink. It's wrong and you know it. But you'll get around to it. It'll get done. After all, you've got more important things to worry about. It's the beginning of a new year. There's a ton of stuff to do. I've got my whole life ahead of me. My friends, there is nothing more important right now than the condition of your heart. You are not guaranteed your next breath, much less tomorrow. And so get your house in order today. It is not a coincidence that this teaching team has been preaching holiness for two months now. We don't compare notes. The watchmen on the wall had blown the horn and sounded the alarm. If you missed everything else tonight, this is the one thing I need you to take home. Wake up. Turn off the cruise control. Get your heart and your house in order. Because judgment is coming. And you're going to want to be on the winning side. Stop the excuses. Repent and believe.